Amen, and please be seated. If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I do invite you one last time to turn with me to the book of Genesis. For this sermon series, a look at Genesis 1 through 11, a series we have titled Gospel Foundations. We have been looking for the gospel itself in these early pages of Scripture and the formation of the world as we would come to know it. And especially this morning is a precursor to that which happens afterward. For in Genesis 12, Lord willing, when we return to this book, we will read of the story of Abraham and the patriarchs. And we will see of the formation and the foundation of Israel and how it grew from all of this background, all of this promise, all of this hope that we've read over the last several months. And today we will see um, the opposite of what we saw last week. If you were with us last week, we saw the Tower of Babel um, and the, basically the effects of turning your back on God, um, walking away from Him and His plan. And in that we saw, and in the genealogy just prior to that, what it will look like for the people that will walk away from God as we read those names and we read those places uh, that will eventually become antagonistic peoples and antagonistic cities to God's people. Well, this morning we read one last genealogy and this would be the other side of that coin. This would be those who are faithful, at least people within it. And that's, that's worth noting. Um, when we talk about bloodlines and genealogies of promise, what we're not saying is every single individual in this family tree believed. It's, we're not saying every single individual was faithful and true. However, if you look at it at the macro level as we are, you can say that this is the line of promise. Through them, sometimes one family, sometimes one member of one family, the love of God the commitment to his word and the commitment to the scriptures continues and flows. And so as we look at the line of Shem this morning, what we see is through this line, the promise made to Adam and Eve continues. And all of this really sets the backdrop for what we will read, Lord willing, when we come to chapter 12. With that in mind, I invite you to Follow along with me either in your Bibles or in the insert uh, that came along with your bulletin as we read from the Word of God for us today. I will begin in Genesis chapter 11, verse 10, and I will read into the end of the chapter. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was a hundred years old, he followed or fathered Archpashad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arkpashad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arkpashad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arkpashad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years, and he had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serub. 
And Meru lived after he fathered Serub 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serub had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah and the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishkah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years. And Terah died in Haran. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And he has promised us this day that it will do exactly what he has set out for it. Would you please go with me in prayer and ask that God do that which he has promised. Dear Heavenly Father, as we approach yet another list, a genealogy, a marking of descendants in their lives, in their offspring. I pray that you would give us eyes to see your glorious purpose for our lives, for this world, for the peoples of this world at a global scale, at a macro scale. May we walk away from this text with an awe of you, an eternal mindset as we go forward, a hatred of sin, particularly the sin of idolatry, and may we cling to you all the more, for you and you alone are the God who keeps his promises. I pray that you would be with us this day, be with us this hour, open our ears, our minds, and our hearts, that we might receive your word today. And we pray all of this in our Savior Jesus Christ's name. Amen. It is no secret that I love J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings series. I just finished it again something I do at least every other summer and have for some time. To me, it is quite possibly one of the greatest acts of literary writing apart from the Word of God itself. In fact, I taught a class, I'm so enamored by Tolkien, on the friendship between Tolkien and Lewis and how they met and of their schooling and of their minds and their brilliance of the ability to create and really, if you dig into that, you, you come to realize just how either brilliant or quasi and insane the man was. He wrote a story because he wanted to write a language. And he did. He wrote a language. He was a linguist, a studier of words and letters and of many, many different types. And to fill his stories with this language, he created those very stories. And, and while I could spend the rest of the time this morning, and it would be very unwise to do so, to explain to you my love of Tolkien and his love of language and his influence by Norse um, different uh, grammar styles and words and syntax, um, that would not benefit you. But it would prove my point. 
Some people disagree with me on this. Some of you, you heard J.R.R. Tolkien and you were already checked out. You're like, okay, I'll pick back up when he says something about the Bible. And that's okay. I've come to accept that and I still love you. But most of the time when, when you hear that and there's, there's those visceral reactions, there's like, yeah, here we go, or oh, all right, we'll tune in in a minute. It's usually because Tolkien can be a bit descriptive. I think we can all admit that, right? His ability to spend a chapter discussing the etymology of non-living trees in the midst of a, a great and perilous journey is remarkable and almost unique to him. And the fact that he has that etymology, the fact that um, it doesn't really advance the story, but it does give you a sense of his world. And many people, when they, they read Tolkien or try to read Tolkien, um, they find these things as roadblocks, these interjections as, wait a minute, so I, I've got to read this, but I don't really get anywhere with it? No, no, that's not for me. Let's pick something else up. Even worse, um, and I have an appreciation for uh, the movies. I actually think um, that the original Lord of the Rings uh, series and movie is, is a great um, movie series and one that you should watch. Um, I'd be happy to do it with you. However, I have never in my years of watching the series, and I watch the extended versions, the only way to do it, um, have never heard anyone ever say to me, you know which one is my favorite. I love the Fellowship of the Ring, the first movie in the series. Not ever. Nobody. We like the Two Towers for its action and its battle. We like it for Helm's Deep. We like Return of the King for Aragorn um, and his return. But no one has ever come up to me and gone, I love the exposition and backstory in the Fellowship of the Ring. Again, for the same reason. We, we want to get to the action. We want to get to the point. However, as he wrote it to be one story, and if you really wanted to be technical, it's six books, it's one story, it should be read in sequential order. Um, and so to say you don't like one book over the other, you're wrong because it's one book. I get it. But if you didn't know that background, that backstory, if you didn't know that those minor pieces of information, you wouldn't appreciate all that goes on. The reality is to get the, the grandiose nature of his story, you need those little details. And so you almost have to suffer through them to get to the meat of the, um, the narrative, if you will. Now, why do I say all of that? God's word is inerrant and infallible. It is complete and it is perfect and it is good. And every passage serves good for God's glory and for us as his people. Sometimes... Those passages, the, the good that they do, the benefit that they give, beside what they give in and of themselves, is to set us up for something greater. Is to give us that context, that background, those detailed pieces of information that when you look at it on its own, you're saying, I don't know where, how we're moving forward in the story here. But when you read it in its totality, you walk away going, wow, God works on a big scale. God works in a level that I don't fully grasp. And, 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 and even when we do think about it, we can have a hard time coming to the sense of the just global magnitude of it. That is what we find today. In this bloodline, in, in uh, these two genealogies that we have, what we really are doing is setting the stage for Abram. That being said... This passage serves good in and of its own right. And so we're going to seek to do both today. We're going to seek to appreciate this passage for what it sets up 
what it, what it prepares us for, the line of Abram. And we're going to take a moment and appreciate this passage for the, the biblical wonder and splendor and majesty that it provides for us. And so it will be a difficult task this morning, um, but as this is the third or fourth genealogy we have encountered, um, I know that you are well prepared uh, to dive into it. And to see this, and we will be looking at this as a big picture scale this morning, I want us to see two beautiful truths. I want us to walk away from two truths in this passage. First, God's promise is fulfilled. And we see that particularly through the line of Shem in verses 10 through 26. God's promise is fulfilled. Secondly, grace overcomes sin. We could, we could leave it there. Grace overcomes sin. But in this passage in particular, it's grace overcomes the sin of idolatry. And so God is a promise-keeping God, and God's grace overcomes, overpowers, is greater than, is better than sin particularly the sin of idolatry. And we find both of those in this genealogy. So would you look with me this morning as we break it into those two sections, um, 10 through 26 and then 27 um, through the end, to first see that God's promise is fulfilled. And what promise is this? What are we speaking of when we say that God is fulfilling promises in this genealogy? Well, one place we could go to answer that would be back to Genesis chapter 9. This is um, Noah's prophetic word after his sin, and his sin caused the sin of Ham. And his two other sons, they bless him, they honor him in covering his sin, his nakedness. And he utters, Noah utters this prophetic word. He says in Genesis 9, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. From that section, we see this is a word of hope, this is a word of promise that God would continue to be the God of the line of Shem. That God would be faithful to Shem and his children after him. Further, it was a hope that his line would be blessed and would multiply. And so we see two promises fulfilled here. One, God is the God of Shem and of his descendants. And two... He is blessed, and he does multiply. And so right off the bat, just once again, we're looking at this at a macro scale. We see God to be a promise-keeping God because he remains faithful to the line of Shem, and through Shem, the line multiplies and continues. This is all through this blessing that Noah offers, being inspired by God to offer this prophetic word. And that is something we cannot disregard. We can't look at this lightly. Um, every time God fulfills a promise, our response has got to be, wow, what a God. Every time we see promise offered, promise fulfilled, um, we see a prophet. Prophet makes a declaration, it is kept, the prophet is upheld as true and good. So here, God fulfills this promise, and so we need to respond, wow, what a promise-keeping God. And it continues. As I said, this passage really does serve as a precursor for Genesis 12 and for the nation of Israel. Israel, of course, tracing its roots all the way to Abram and God's promise with him. And so, while this is fulfillment in and of itself, this is just a foretaste of what will happen when God says to Abram, changing his name to Abraham, 
you will father many nations. You will have descendants greater than the stars of the heaven, greater than the sand on the shore. Through your line will the seed of promise come. Furthering this promise on down through the generations, God upholding it even more, and marching us toward closer and closer to that seed of the woman that will defeat the serpent and undo the effects of the fall. This really is a linking passage, chapter 11 and chapter 12. It's a bridge uh, between uh, the section of Scripture, 1 through 11, we call this the primeval history, um, and then um, 12 through um, 35 or 36, uh, where we get into the patriarchal history. And we will, um, Lord willing, is when we come back to um, the book of Genesis, um, we will see how these seeds grow and blossom and flourish. Israel will be a people unto God. They will be a people who trust in Him, who trust in His Word. They will stand out in light of the other nations. Those nations we discussed in the last two Sundays as the world was, was scattered, or the people were scattered amongst the world. And I've made this point, I believe, every time we've looked at a genealogy, but it, it, it's important to make any time we do this. I know that took seconds um, to read through that list, and, and I know that it's, it's easy to hit it and go, and I'm always the world's worst in, in my Bible plans to want to fast forward through those parts. Um, but Genesis, if it's taught me anything, it's to slow down and appreciate it. Because we're talking thousands of years here of God-fulfilling promises, of children, of descendants, of people being born and people flourishing on this earth. And that's something not to take lightly, that, that children are born, that children are given to future generations, that, that life continues. And so may, if nothing else, when we read a genealogy, when we read a passage like this, may we at least appreciate God. You're talking, and he lived 400 years, and he lived 200 years, and he lived 200 years, and he went on, and his children went on to see that God keeps things going that God upholds things. His promise to be our God and for us to be His people, for Him to give us a world, to give us an earth for us to, to live in and to, to be benefited from. Every day that that happens, God is fulfilling His promises. Every day. You woke up this morning, promise fulfilled. Lord willing, tomorrow you go to work and you work a job and you're somewhat successful even through the struggle, even through the pain, even through the toil, even through the difficulty because of the curse. It's promise fulfilled. And so we have to see on a macro level that God is a promise-keeping God simply by generations passing on. Another promise that we need to see in this passage comes from Genesis 6.3. And this is the start of the story of Noah. This is when the corruption of the earth is becoming great. And God says, I will limit, I will restrict the years of man. The years of man will be 120 years. And we noted in that passage, this is an act of mercy by God. Man was sinning greatly, living eight, nine hundred, almost a thousand years. The capacity and the ability to commit great acts of sin, leads us right into the flood. And so God says, I will reduce the years of man. I love how uh, Matthew Henry explains this. He says, 
there is an observable gradual decrease in the years of lives. Shem reached to 600, which fell short of the patriarchs before the flood. The next three short of 500. The next three did not reach 300. After them, we read, not any of them obtained 200 except Terah. And not many ages after that, Moses reckoned 70 or 80 to be the longest that most men will live. When the earth began to be replenished, man's life began to shorten, so that the decrease is to be imputed to the wise disposal of providence rather than the decay of nature. For the elect's sake, so for, for our sake, men's days are shortened, and being evil, for the unelect or non-elect, it's well that they are few and attain not to the years of the lives of our fathers. And so it's a mercy on both ends that God shortens the years of life. And it's a fulfillment of a promise that he would do it. And we see this as a gradual decrease through the generations, that lifespan shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. It's according to God's wise counsel that these days would be shortened. Now, you might say, I could do a lot of good if I'd lived 900, 1,000 years. That may be true, but think about it like this. 80 years and then you're with God forever. 900 years and you're with God forever. That's a great mercy that God is saying, no, I'm going to speed up the time it takes for you to get to me. Think of it that way, and then we'll appreciate that. Because um, it can be a little tempting to go, boy, being 900 years old would be really cool. It might be. Um, but then again, I would rather have 80 and then an eternity with God. So what should we do with this information? We've seen just two promises fulfilled. And, and if we dug into these names and, and we dug into these backgrounds, we would find even more fulfillment of promises. You know, what should we see as a church today as we read a passage like this and we see these promises being kept? I believe we should come to two conclusions. One, God is a promise-keeping God on a macro scale. I've already said this, but it's worth repeating. God is keeping order and is fulfilling promises on a size that we don't often consider. What this should do is it should protect you from discouragement. This should keep your heart through those seasons where God does not seem to answer. It's not that God does not care. It's rather His ways are greater than our ways and His thoughts greater than our thoughts. We cannot become impatient with God. And the temptation is in those seasons to pray less, to worry more. However, I would argue the opposite approach must take place. We have been given the ability to become active participants in the will of God through word, through sacraments, and through prayer. We should seek these more and read the scriptures more when we don't see God's promises immediately fulfilled in our lives. Those moments, those events should drive us to Him. They should send us to Him. They should send us to the Father. God, I've been praying. I've got this situation. I need your help and I don't feel like you're answering me. The response to that should be, well, let's keep praying. Let's keep searching. Let's keep driving to God. And what you will find as you have the ability to look back on it, and it may not be till heaven that you do, you'll see that God is changing you all the while after his own image. And so we must appreciate God at a macro level, something that we often don't do because we can become focused on the micro, especially the, the a micro of ourselves. The second thing, or second reaction, I believe we should take to a passage such as this is to think heavenly about generations. 
Think heavenly about generations. We need to consider our children and our grandchildren. And if the Lord's not given you children of your own, the children of the church, they are your children. They belong to each one of us. While we cannot secure their faith on our own, that is fully into the Lord, we can and must pray with them and pray for them. We can educate them in the ways of God. We can love them and forgive them. We can all walk alongside them through their struggles of life and point them to the one who can save them and call them on his own. We are a dealing with eternal matters. We are talking about a lasting legacy. Shem probably would not have been able to see far enough down his line to realize what would come of it. But through his faithfulness and trust in God, his line did continue, and we are blessed. And if that doesn't light a fire under you to be a training ground and a training center for the next generation and the one after it in the ways of the Lord, I don't know what else to tell you. We must see one of the greatest importances and one of our greatest tasks as Christians and as parents, the raising and nurturing of future generations. For we see positively and negatively in Scripture the effect that has on our lives, on our bloodline, and, and bigger, the world itself. Oh, that we would pray for those that go along after us. And this becomes all the more remarkable. We do see all of this, um, again, as a macro level in this um, genealogy. But it becomes all the more remarkable when we look at the second half of the genealogy. Because you would hear all that and you would go, wow, Shem's line, they were a bunch of all-stars. They really had it together. Well, no, they did not. Most certainly they didn't. In fact, the text is very clear that they did not. So what we need to see while all of that is true and we hold all of that up is that grace overcomes sin. That all of this happens even in and through sinful people, which is an encouragement to us. So let's look at the second half of our text, 27 through 32, to see how grace overcomes particular sin. And in this case, it's the sin of idolatry. Here, we're dealing more narrowly, so we've zoomed in, we got to, we got to Terah, now we're going to focus specifically on Terah and his descendants, particularly Abram and Lot, and Abram's wife. And, and even that, we're zooming in even more, because it's really what it, this passage is about, is that Terah with Sarai and Abram and Lot left Ur, and headed toward Canaan. And this is important to think about. Ur would have been a pagan city. They would have had pagan worship. They would have had their own gods, their own ideas. And they left that city and headed to Canaan. Canaan, an important city. Why? Because it was one of the cities that would become part of the promised land. It's a symbol of promise. It's a symbol of God's mercy and God's grace. It's a symbol of fulfillment. What we know about Ur is around uh, 2000 BC, this city would be destroyed um, by the Elamites. And so this could have been one of the reasons that Terah would have moved his family. He could have sensed this in, uh, in, the, in the air, if you will. But I offer a, a better answer as to why they left Ur and headed toward Canaan. And that is because of the grace of God. 
The reason they moved, the reason they left the place of their home, the place where they, they would have um, been welcomed and they would have had descendants and went to a new land is because of the grace of God. And we know this by looking at several other passages of Scripture that say it more clearly. As we're running through the narrative, we need to go past it to get a better sense of what's taking place. So I offer three passages for you. One, Joshua 24. Joshua, in a moment of commanding Israel, of commanding the people of God, he says this, Joshua 24, verses 1 through 3. He gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. Joshua is reminding Israel that Terah, the father of Abram, was an idol worshiper. He was one who did not love God, who instead worshipped false gods. And yet, at the same time, God is saying, and I, you can almost read it, drug them out of the city and place them in this place. You, you have to read the force of God in this passage. I brought them out. I sent them to this place. I led them there. Because it says, I took. And where did God place them? In or through the land of Canaan, the land of promise. And Joshua is telling Israel, Israel, remember how I led your fathers, how I have led you. That's what they needed in that moment um, in the narrative of the book of Joshua. We can go elsewhere in Scripture. We can look in the New Testament. Another very mighty passage um, that speaks to uh, Terah and to Abraham is the sermon from Stephen. So Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, you know, Stephen is one of the first martyrs. He gets put on trial. He has to give an account. He has to give a defense for what he believes and what he has been preaching. And he says these words, Acts chapter 7, starting in verse, um, verse 2. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go, out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went. He went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. After his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. And so Stephen... On his death pyre, if you will, is preaching this sermon to Jews. And he says, the land that you now possess, you're standing on, was from God bringing Abram, your forefather, an idolater, out of his former place, his pagan worship, and into a place of promise. It's due to following God's calling on his life that you're standing where you are. And boy, did that anger them. That angered them because what he's saying is the God that I proclaim to you is that God. Jesus Christ is that God. He is the fulfillment of that promise. And they stoned him for it. A third passage, Hebrews 
Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. In the section of faith, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. They're a little bit different language here, don't we? The, the first two passages we read it, and it, it really, you really get that sense of God pulling him out, God bringing him out. But here we get to the heart of the matter. The writer of Hebrews rightly says, what is the driving factor? Faith. Faith in what? Faith in God, the God of the Bible, the God of promise. Abraham went from his home, he went from his city, he went from the worship of the idols of his father to worship of God because he was looking to a city that has foundations. The designer and builder had to be God. God and God's grace fell upon Abraham and brought him out of this place and into a place of promise. You see, when God called Abraham out of idolatry and called him to follow him, he answered. He obeyed. His whole mind and his whole life, it shifted. He sought after the God of promise. He looked for the city built by God. He no longer sought the idols carved by hands, for he had heard from the one who made him. This, my brothers and sisters, is grace. This is the mercy of God. And this is why it amazes me so much today that, that many will say, yeah, I love God. And I worship these things. It's, it's like Israel. Anytime their hearts would get right with God, but they wouldn't tear down the altars. They would recommit their life and worship to God, but they'd keep the false altars alive just in case as a backup plan, as plan B. That's not how it works with God. When God calls, when, when God works in your life, when God speaks into your life, you tear it down and you walk away. You leave it. Abraham didn't know where he was going. He knew he was going to a promised land, but he wasn't told where it was. He didn't have the coordinates. He just was told, follow me. When you submit your life to God, you will want him. You will want his ways, his word, his plans for your life. Maybe not perfectly. Certainly not perfectly. Abraham, even after his interaction with God, even after his conversion story, wasn't perfect. He's going to do some things. Great sins. He's going to sin greatly. But when God called, he went. And when God spoke, he repented. He knew who he was because he knew his God. He had heard from the Father. And that's grace. That's grace. Well, today, brothers and sisters, you have heard from the Father. These are the words of the Lord. We don't, we don't say that flippantly. We truly do believe that this is God's word for you today. You have heard it. You have heard his call. You have seen the effect of trusting in him and his word passing on to future generations. You have seen how God can call someone out of such sin as idolatry and call them to follow him to a land of promise and hope. So my final question for you today is how are you going to respond? What will you do in light of his word today? 
We only have a little while to be on this earth. Our time is very short. Dear brothers and sisters, flee any and all sin that draw you away from Him. Fear particular sins such as the sin of idolatry which lies in all of our hearts. I keep a plaque on my wall right in front of my desk. John Calvin says, the human heart is a factory of idols to remind me just how easy it is to trust anything rather than God. And if you do look into your heart and find an idol there, turn to God who can call you from it and draw you to himself. I pray that this series as a whole has been an encouragement to your heart just as much as it has been for me. May we remember that the grace offered from the very beginning, from the first words of Scripture, the fact that they're written down, that we can read them, is the promise of the gospel. God came into our lives. He stepped down and entered our lives that we might be with Him. That is the gospel message. That is the promise of hope from the beginning of Scripture to the very end. And that's His promise for you today. Would you please bow with me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this macro-level view of the bloodline of Shem. We thank You for all of the truths found there and know that we would have time to to take apart these names and to look into these lives and to, to see how You proved Yourself faithful to them across the generations. Father, I pray that we would look at this and, and we really would search our hearts and we would seek to put You first and foremost. Oh, that we would give a legacy to our children, to our grandchildren, to the children of this church. May we seek You and may they seek You. And may there always be a remnant. May this church, may Christ the Redeemer stand for biblical truth that on the day of judgment we're told that You remain faithful. Oh, that You would grant that to us. Protect us, O Lord. Protect us from certain sins, from idolatry and all sorts of matters that can draw us away from You. Help us to be faithful. Forgive us when we fail. And encourage us through the love for one another. The word, through the sacraments, and through prayer. We ask all of these things in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen.